Here's what we read. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews, and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What are they building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their stains from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, but the people worked with all their heart. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, They were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. This is the word of God. Father, may this be water for thirsty souls today who face opposition on so many levels and perhaps are weary. We thank you that Christ is the living water, and that this word has been endorsed by him. He quoted so much from the Old Testament and treated this as God's word, so we do the same today as we look into the past and draw strength for the present. Be with us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage is really all about moving forward in the face of opposition, and uh, kind of a two-part series, really, because it goes on. Uh, next week in a different kind of way, but just looking at verses 1 through 9 today. It really does help if you have a situation like this where opposition's coming against you to have a great leader. Great leaders are fantastic. You can look back historically and look at leaders who've not been great or maybe on the opposite side of your own position, but they're great. They're great leaders. In the book of Nehemiah, we see somebody who is really pretty remarkable. He's a skilled motivator, he's uh, an organizer, and he is a delegator. Um, Kind of feels like all the things I'm not, personally, but he, look, if you look at chapter three, he has taken over 40 groups, different groups of people from different walks of life. And in that chapter, he gives them a vision for what can be, and he equips them with the resources to get there. And he actually assigns different sections of the wall, and he says, you're in charge of this part of the wall. And what's so amazing about the accomplishment is he gets people to do this who normally wouldn't be part of it at all. You see the high priest, for example, rolling up his sleeves and getting dirty. He's getting mud on him. That is not something high priests did back in the day. They were above that. They were reserved for something else. But you see in chapter 3 a high priest doing it. And one section of the wall, a man named Shalom, has his daughters out there working. It's mentioned in the text. That's not something. That wasn't a role for women back then. That was, that was very countercultural to the day as well. And yet Nehemiah has cast a vision in such a way that high priests and girls 
are working side by side constructing this wall. It's pretty remarkable. These people are assigned sections that are close to their homes. That's pretty smart. If you're trying to raise up a, a protection, you know, we, we like private property in the United States. So we like to put up fences to protect ourselves from potential enemies. And if I go over to your house and do it, I might do an okay job, but you're going to do a pretty good one as well because it's your house that you're protecting. And so he's got these people working on sections that had an interest for them in close proximity. So it's just, it's really remarkable. And if you read commentaries on Nehemiah, perhaps you've read some of these as well. Almost everybody starts out by talking about how instructive Nehemiah has been in their own lives as a leader. As somebody who has given them just ways to function and operate as a leader. Um, Look at where he's come so far. We started off in chapter one with him being a slave. Hundreds, almost a thousand miles away from his hometown, and now here we are, already in chapter 4, and by the end of it, the walls have reached half their height, a project that had begun and then stalled out. Pretty remarkable. And, of course, there's only one Nehemiah. I don't know of any others who have shown up kind of recently, and that's true for anything. Moses, Joshua, these people with the Bible, there's only one of them, and yet the principles of leadership certainly apply to us. This is God's word. It's living and active. It has, it's a purpose here. And the reality is you are a leader. You're a leader of somebody in some sort of way. It, it may not be in the same sort of scale. And, and as I've said before, even if you're the youngest child in the family, if you've got a dog, you've got something to control. You're over something, right? Buy a fish. Get something. That's what we want to do. Wait long enough, there's another kid. You're older than somebody else. So you do have a call to be a leader of a certain sort. So when we look at this, it's probably a reasonable grid to say, what can I learn on my own in terms of being a leader? And I, I don't know about you, when I, when I go to funerals, one of the things I take away typically from funerals is I want to be a better father and husband. If it's somebody who fit that role, um, or whoever it might be, I mean, usually they're a little bit like, you know, social media posts. Let's just talk about all the good <laughs> that happened. But there's reality to that. And I find myself walking away saying, man, I want to love the people in my life better. I want to go hug them right now and show them because that's the way that I can show affection to them and, and hold them tight and love them the best I can for as long as I can while they're here. Because before I went, I didn't want to hug them, frankly kind of irritating me, and I was looking forward to not being in their presence. But when you're faced with death, you sort of realize all of a sudden there's value in the life that's right in front of you as well. And when we look back in Nehemiah, that's the kind of effect it has on me as we look at these chapters as well. So things are going pretty well. He's come from that really low estate. He's risen to a place of prominence. Artaxerxes has given him the stamp of approval. He's got all these people rallied around him, and things are looking great. But then we run into a bit of a buzzsaw in chapter 4, maybe a buzzkill for a little bit. And it will become a buzzsaw in the future as well. So we'll see, how do you move forward in the face of opposition? Because now, there's been nothing but success, but the whispers start coming in these verses. And we find there are voices of opposition that are all around. And, and that's, that's the first thing that we see in these verses. 
voices of opposition. They're, they're found in verses 1 through 3 and then 6 through 8. Up first, if you have the text in front of you still, is Sanballat. And this guy is apparently threatened by a renewed Jerusalem. If these people accomplish their task, he's going to lose something in the process. There's a threat to his authority and his power. And so he's really upset by this. In verses 1 through 2, he ridicules the Jews and he does so in the presence of others. So other people can hear what he's saying. His associates and the army of Samaria... And, and you heard those things. What are these people doing? Are they going to really restore this wall? What do they think? They're disillusioned. Are they going to offer sacrifices? Are they going to finish it in a day? Can they bring stones back to life from these rubble heaps? And Tobiah, it's at his side. You can kind of picture this. Sam Ballot seems like the leader. Maybe there's kind of a, a gang of bullies or whatever, and, and the first guy's talking, and he's really the, the strong person. He's articulate, and he says all kinds of things, and the other guy's, yeah, 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 yeah. And what if there's a fox that goes up there? I, I, I bet that thing will fall over, and he gets his one line in. That's pretty much what he does. Tobiah just builds on top of it. As well, those are real voices of opposition, and they're just voices at this point. There's no physical threat. But sometimes voices carry more weight than physical threats ever could. I mean, than actual physical uh, experiences as well. They're perhaps even more damaging. And when Sam Bala asks these questions, he's basically saying this. You could look at each one. There's messages behind each one. There's, there's a question that turns into a message that he wants those people to hear who are busy moving forward, and he says, I'm going to come against it, and here's how I'm going to attack you. Those messages are things like this. This is the kind of thing he's saying, you're pathetic. You know, these feeble Jews, you, look at your history. You guys are a bunch of losers. You're exiles. You're nothing. You're incapable. You're hopeless. You're totally outmatched. You lack the resolve. You've got no spine whatsoever. You lack the intelligence, and you lack the ability to get where you want to be. That's kind of behind those questions that he's broadcasting to others. I want these people to hear that they're nothing. That the message in their head when they think they're making progress is, you will fail. Because you failed before. <laughs> look at the history. It didn't happen very long ago. You think you're making progress now? It all looks good? It's going to come to an end. I mean, it's so pathetic that even a tiny little fox is going to go up there and beep, everything you've done has gone. You're worthless. You're failures. Those are the voices of opposition. And those are the voices that are designed to keep the Israelites from moving forward. Or perhaps us. I, I, honestly, I can't help thinking of social media here. <laughs> I just can't. I'm sorry. It's such an easy target these days. It's, it's nothing new in the sense that the message is the same, but it's broadcast in a way with a much broader audience to a much younger age. And those messages that come work both ways. There's the way that you communicate a message to somebody and also the way you hear it. And I think especially for teenagers who neurologically are still developing, the messages you hear at a young age are the ones you might fight for the rest of your life. You remember, I've said before Ben Carson, you know, neuroscientist, 
said something amazing. Your mind, your brain never forgets anything it sees or hears. Ever. It's there. And just think about the messages coming that are there over and over and over and over again. And it's so much like social media because in verses 6 through 8, the crowd just gets larger. It goes viral. I mean, it's interesting because in 1 through 3, you've got Sam Ballot and sidekick Tobiah. And then in verses 6 through 8, as they kind of, you know, pray, and, and we'll talk about that in a second, and now I'm not going to listen to those voices. I'm going to keep going forward and doing what I know I'm supposed to do. And the wall reaches half its height. And what happens in verse 7? When Sam Ballot, Tobiah, they were already there. Who else is there now? The Arabs, the Ammonites, the men of Ashdod. They're jumping in on it too. This is reposting, retweeting, all kinds of stuff going out. And a whole gang of people now is coming on and saying, here are our voices of opposition against you collectively and you individually. One after the other. It just keeps coming. What do you do with that? I mean, it's, it's in our day as well. We know this. The messages that we hear even as a kid may be from a parent to us that are stamped in there deep. What do you do? With that, well, the text gives us a way forward, moving forward in the face of opposition, because there's voices of opposition, but there's also a response of faith. And that the response here in this text is twofold. Prayer shouldn't be a surprise. Nehemiah prays all the time. We saw that in chapter one: fasting, praying, waiting, resolving, uh, just looking forward to the opportunity when something happens. And then in chapter 2, it does. There's some fear involved because when he speaks out, you know, that something bad could happen with the power of this person and his position. So he prays to God again. Father, be merciful as I speak out what's going on. And look, Nehemiah was a pretty strong guy. He'd be a choleric in this day. I mean, even you just look at that in this verse too. I mean, he's a fighter. He's a strong leader. And you come at him, he's coming back at you. It seems like not all of us are like that. Some of us may be a little more uh, timid in that respect. God uses all kinds of people. That's what I think is beautiful about chapter 3. It's a whole scale of individuals coming together to accomplish a task. Nehemiah is one person. He couldn't do it all on his own. He needed everybody. That's the beauty. Every member is a minister. You are stones being built together. You are the bride of Christ, not just me, but you, all together. And Nehemiah tapped into that, knew that reality. But these voices of opposition that are coming, what's he going to do? He's going to continue doing the same thing he's done from the beginning. He's going to pray. The first thing that he does is pray. Just Sanballat and Tobias are mocking. Nehemiah prays. Verses 4 through 6. Hear us, O God, for we are despised. And then he gets kind of, he kind of gets a little spunky here with his prayer, too. You know, turn their insults back on them. Let them feel what, what we're experiencing too. Don't, don't leave them alone. Make them feel the weight of what they're saying. It's, it's kind of a fighting prayer. It's like some of the psalms you hear of the imprecatory psalms. You, you might be familiar with that. There are psalms in the Bible that are pretty rough. Uh, and, and they seem to be endorsed. And even some of them repeated by Christ because there is a right and a wrong and there are consequences when people, the enemies of God, come against him. 
There's a, there's a right time for justice, and God will meet it out. And I appeal to him for that to happen. Apparently, it's endorsed in some way by him. And that seems a little odd, probably, to us of modern sensibilities. Uh, Derek Thomas, full disclosure, he was one of my professors. And I've never read any of his books, but he's got a commentary on Nehemiah. And I need to tell him, he's actually a pretty good writer. <laughs> he's Welsh, and he's done a great job with this. He, he says, this is a prayer for justice in a situation that is sinful. Modernity's ambivalent response to morality finds such prayers vengeful rather than righteous. And few of us can hear prayers calling for judgment on God's enemies without cringing at the self-righteousness that we perceive from them. We perceive them as assuming. Furthermore, this is not a prayer for personal vengeance. It's a prayer for God to do something. Nehemiah is not in a position to offer a military solution as such, and therefore he asks God to deal with them. If we have problems with the idea of God seeking vengeance on his enemies, we've adopted a view of God that the Bible knows nothing about. Because God does take vengeance on what is wrong. And you know what? If you're on the receiving end, you don't have a problem with that. Typically, you want God to bring justice in, around you. It's usually on the opposite side that you might have an issue. What if you're the one he'd be bringing vengeance on and justice on? Now, the good news, of course, if we're in crisis, that vengeance has been paid out in full on Christ. And you hope that if that happens, somebody would turn as well to the solution. But there's something, not just wrestling with the, the morality or rightness of this at heart. We want that. We want those who are doing evil to face justice. And prayer is a solid place to start. And then more opposition arises, and the response of faith, again, is to pray. Because first we saw the two voices, now the many. And in verse 9, there's another prayer. Here's what it is. It's very short. But we prayed to our God again and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. I find that quite fascinating. We pray to God for help, and we post a guard. <laughs> and we're giving this guy a sword. <laughs> so if an enemy comes, he doesn't just sit and kneel and pray and say, God, protect me. He brings out the sword. There's prayer and there's preparation. There's, they're both. It's kind of not an either or. It's a both and that's happening here. That They lead with prayer, but then they're pretty practical about it as well. It's a little bit like, you know, when Jesus is taken by Satan to the top of, of a building, you know, maybe it was this height or something. He says, hey, prove your faith. Jump down from the building and see if God rests you. And Jesus says, that's foolishness. Why would I test God like that? Jesus understood the laws of gravity. He put them into place. He was a man. He knew what would happen. And here, too, Nehemiah says, I'm combining prayer with the wisdom that says... We've got a threat here, and we're going to do what we can to make sure that we're protected. And the biblical perspective on our world is that faith both prays and acts. And that's simply because we don't live in a world that is only material or only spiritual. It's both. When you, if you are going to adopt a biblical mindset, then you have to embrace the reality that we are physical beings, and there's also a spiritual world. It's not either or. It's both and. And sometimes throughout church history, we tend to minimize one or even set one other, one completely aside. The group of Gnostics, for example, 
said that Jesus only appeared to be human, but he really wasn't. And that's not true. If he didn't physically come in the flesh, then he couldn't have died for our sins and will remain in them. At the same time, Jesus did wrestle with Satan, who is a spirit who is controlling all of these things and a real entity as well with a spiritual realm that exists. So if you have only a materialistic view of the world, you'll look only for materialistic solutions. But the Bible doesn't allow that. One of the reasons Nehemiah starts with prayer is because he believes there's a spiritual realm, that there is a God who is spirit who can control things beyond the scope of what he is able to control. He's probably read the book of Job. (laughs) <laughs> where we know that in, you know, these tragedies are occurring all around him, and there's a scene in heaven as well saying, if he considered my servant, and Satan's given some reign with you know, God's restrictions to do what he wants and bring from the spiritual realm physical realities to bear. That's what's happening here. We pray because we believe there's a real God, unseen, who attends to our prayers. The kind of God who cares and who can do something about it. And that's demonstrated here in this passage. And that, I mean, it's it's quite fascinating because, again, reading the people that I've been reading, they're all talking about spiritual warfare in these passages. For for example, J.I. Packer. Who, you know, some people might think, does this guy talk about spiritual warfare? Oh, yeah. He does. He says this, the real theme of Nehemiah 4 through 6 is spiritual warfare. And Nehemiah's real opponent, lurking behind the real opponents, critics and grumblers who occupied his attention directly, was Satan, whose name means adversary, and who operates as the permanent enemy of God, God's people, God's work, and God's praise. Nehemiah does not mention him, but that does not mean he was not there. Direct opposition on the human level to those who are obeying God and the use of flaming arrows of discouragement from Ephesians 6.16 to destroy hope, induce fear, and so paralyze their endeavors are two of his regular tactics, and both are in evidence in these chapters. We see Satan's, when you see Satan's fingerprints on events, it is a safe bet that Satan himself is actively present even if he carefully disguises himself out of sight. J.I. Packer is saying, here's the things that are going on. He is here to destroy hope and induce fear. That's what Satan does. He's super good at it. I mean, if you were to write Satan's job description, steal, kill, and destroy, and you were an HR person hiring demons and whatnot too, he'd be great. He's fantastic at it. He's wonderful at his job. And he's in opposition to everything good. Everything. Uh, Derek Thomas puts it this way, Satan, who lies behind this opposition in every form of it in our own time, has more than one scheme up his sleeve. Satan always opposes a good thing, no matter what it is. In this world, sin ravaged as it is, where Satan prowls like, not Stan, (laughs) prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, We must expect trouble. Passages such as this one are given to us by way of example so that we might be forewarned. But it's nothing new. And Satan's arsenal, though terrifying, is not unlimited. His stratagems are, in fact, sometimes wholly predictable. And the grace of our Lord is sufficient to meet any contingency. 
In other words, Satan does the same thing over and over and over again. And you get to learn his tactics, you're going to have success in overcoming that enemy. I'm not a military strategist, but I imagine that what I would do is study my enemy and know what his tactics are and then equip myself to make sure I'm not susceptible to them. And the Bible uses a lot of that language. And if Satan really is an entity who really does exist, and we know his job description, steal, kill, and destroy, and we know that he's also the father of lies, then when I'm starting to believe something like a lie, if the voice of opposition is a lie, then Satan's behind it. And I have to learn how to recognize that and then arm myself to combat it so that it doesn't overcome me. We know he's a lion. Stan, this guy, Stan, is a lion roaring, seeking someone to devour, looking for an opportune moment. Do you know what? That's what he's doing. If you're a person in Christ, you're an enemy of Satan. And he's looking for the right moment to snatch away your joy and to put fear in your heart and to render you completely incapable of moving forward. And, you know, C.S. Lewis, I think, had some wisdom when he said, some of us give the, the enemy too much power, and you feel like, I can't overcome this. Yes, you can, because Christ is greater. He's greater than the one who's in the world. But don't dismiss the real power of an enemy like this. And that's the opposite error, saying we're going to pretend like he doesn't exist. Let's make everything materialistic, or let's just not talk about it, and it will go away. But it doesn't work like that if it's real and it's true. So we have to arm ourselves. And, and that's what Nehemiah is doing. I mean, look, he is running to prayer because that's a weapon. It's not just, it's interesting. So we prayed, and then we gave somebody a sword. The prayer is the weapon. And it's, it's doing battle in an unseen world. And if you really had a vision or a glimpse of that for a moment, I think some of us would be a little bit terrified, but also probably motivated to take the weapons that God has given us and begin to use them. And to begin to anticipate the ways that we could be attacked. I mean, don't you think that if all of a sudden we were the Ukraine and, 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 and Russia, and you were all of a sudden in Ukraine, you'd be looking for ways to arm yourself and predicting what's going to happen next. If the Bible is accurate, then there's something like that happening. And it's not in a, in a way that leaves you strapped with fear. If that's what happens, then Satan's the one. So we, we have, but we have to be aware of this, that this is really going on. And I ended with that positive note of Derek Thomas's quote, the grace of our Lord is sufficient to meet any contingency. We are not defenseless. The grace of our Lord is sufficient. You know, when somebody says something like, you're feeble, I mean, you can almost take that and say, repurpose it. You're right. I am weak. But when I'm weak, then God's strong. Nanny, nanny, boo-boo. I mean, you're, turn, you're turning what something that's meant as a, a weapon to you and then shooting it right back at that and saying, yeah, I can't be strong in my own strength. You're right. Instead of letting that say, yeah, you're right. I'm just worthless and I won't amount to anything. And I, I'm, I'm just like this rubble right here. And you're right. I've, you've won. I give up. Well, where's your resilience? Fight back. You know, Beth Kuchenberger, her most recent book is Throw the first punch. I don't know if any of you have gotten that. She's 
back-to-back gals, written a handful of books, and uh, I don't even know how I got the book necessarily in my hands recently, but this week I've been reading quite a bit, and I mean, it's a, it's a provocative title, um, but the idea behind it is if you can learn to kind of get Satan's schemes figured out, then you can do an initial, an initiate before he's successful. What is he trying to do here? How is he trying to ruin, steal, kill, and destroy? Something inside of me or somebody who around me who I love. And we're not left defenseless. Paul talks about this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage world war as the world does. The weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. So they're different quality, but they also have a different effect. Divine power to demolish strongholds? This is, I mean, look, this is a superpower you've been given. You can demolish strongholds. That's pretty awesome. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive. Every, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. There's one of the strategies then that we've been given. It's to take the thoughts, I would say the voices of opposition, that come into your mind and take it captive. I mean, to start thinking, okay, what, what, what am I thinking? What message am I receiving? What voice am I listening to now? And is it true? Is it true or is it a lie? That's part of, you know, taking something captive that doesn't want to be taken captive. It's kind of like a greased pig, I'm guessing. I've never done it before, but I, I, I know it's hard. You chase after it, you try to get it, and it slips out, and you've got to pin it down, I guess. That's kind of like these thoughts. Maybe things that you heard when you were a kid that you keep hearing again and again, or expectations others have put on you, and you just can't measure up ever. Those might be lies. Whose source ultimately is somebody who wants to steal, kill, and destroy you. Take it captive. Take that thought captive. What in the world do I mean? Here's an, here's, an, here's an idea, just a way to play it out. Let's say, for example, you believe you are worthless. On some level, you hear, I'm worthless. I'll never amount to anything. Garbage, or whatever the case may be. In your, your, your moment of weakness, that's what you hear. How would you take that captive? How would you take it captive? You hold it, and you evaluate it, and you look at it, and you examine it, and you think about it. Is that really true? Am I really worthless? Even if everybody around you is saying you are. If, and I'm assuming again, that you're somebody who believes that the Bible and its story is true. If you're grasping that, what really is true? What is true? Are you worthless? You might feel like it. Has anybody ever felt worthless? Anybody here? Audience participation. Have you ever felt worthless? Some people have. Some, some, people, some people have not ever felt worthless. That's awesome. You, what do you do? What would I do? I would take that thought and I would look at it. I would examine it. I would take a moment. Where am I going with this? Is it really true? And then maybe I would take what is true and I would post it somewhere. I would pray about it. I would repeat it. I would believe it. And I would refuse to listen to what is false. What is true? What is true of you? What's true is you have infinite value. 
That's even if you're not in Christ because you're made in his image. You have infinite value, completely immeasurable. And when you hear something say you're worthless, remind yourself of this. Now, we could be in a psychology 101 course, and we could all say, you're really a good person. Yay, believe, believe in yourself. And that's okay. That'll get you so far. But it's not the whole truth. Because there is a God who made you. And the reason you feel like you actually do have some value is because he put it in you. And you will only know that, and it can only sustain you if you believe that that's actually coming from a God who created you. So there is value beyond the scope of just the psychological reality that you can remind yourself of because God's word is truth. And God doesn't lie. Satan's a liar. God tells the truth. And you can believe you have infinite value. Because if you believe in him, John 1.12 says, you have the right to become a son of God. You are a child or a daughter. A lot of other verses you could, go, you could go to. Do you know that? If you ever have the message, I am worthless. I'm a pile of nothing. That's a lie. Because if you're in Christ, not only do you have infinite value as a human, You've been purchased by him, and you have all the rights and privileges of a son or a daughter of the creator of the universe. That's what's true. Or you could even go somewhere else. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Who doesn't remind this, their kids of this if you love the Bible and they're struggling with who they are? Or maybe yourself. It doesn't matter what decade you are. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You may not believe it. If you don't, you're believing a lie. God has constructed you. Doesn't this sound like elementary stuff? This is like, this is a little bit like a Disney movie. Let's pretend we're talking to kids, but it's really for adults. <laughs> You're wonderfully and fearfully made. Message comes, you want your kids to believe it? Why don't you? Exactly. Where, where you are, who you are, the gifts, the limitations. Amazing. Infinite value. But you're probably probably sometimes prone to believe a lie. Take that thought captive. Here's another example. Maybe you hear or you believe in your mind, I'm a failure. Anybody ever felt that way? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a big old F on that one. I'm a massive failure. And it just spins out of control. How do I take it captive? What's really true? Here's what's true. My shortcomings do not define me. That, that's not really, let's be realistic, okay? What's true is I am a sinner saved by grace. Let's not forget the sinner part. <laughs> I am imperfect, but that doesn't mean that I'm a failure. Not by any means, because as I take that captive and I think about what's true, I realize I'm saved by grace, not because of what I've done, but because of the gift I received from Christ. He's He's the one who rescued me. And I know this from Romans 8. There's no condemnation. If you hear the voice all the time, failure, failure, there's no condemnation. You're not on the hook anymore. How could you possibly be good enough? You can't. Christ was. There is no condemnation. And if you hear the voice saying otherwise, behind it's Satan. He's the voice of opposition. Maybe using your circumstances, your parents, your friends, your teachers, Social media posts, lies. Maybe you think, no one will actually stay with me. I am completely unlovable. Take it captive. What is true? God's love is guaranteed. 
It's so vast. Paul has to pray that the people who've received it can actually understand it. I pray that you'd you'd be able to grasp the full dimensions of God's love because no way you're going to get there. It's so massive. And God says this, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's what's true. You feel like no one's going to love you? You're going to be abandoned? God won't. You have to rest in that. There may be a lot of storylines reinforcing that over and over again. Those are imperfect pictures of God's perfect love. We could go on. What thoughts? So here's your homework. What thoughts are you believing? What lies are you believing? And how do you counter those with the weapons God's given us? The offensive weapon in that book of Ephesians we mentioned before is God's word. God's word is truth. And Paul closes that by saying, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. Love how that comes together in the book of Nehemiah. He's praying again and again. He knows, probably as a leader it seems, if he doesn't run to that reality of of praying to God with this, he'll be prone to the same discouragement the people he's trying to encourage are. He's going to run out of strength. Guy's got a lot of energy, a lot of wisdom, a lot of know-how. He's human. He will run out of energy. Even youths grow tired and weary. But you know what? God doesn't. doesn't. He doesn't grow tired. He doesn't grow weary. He looks to support those who are his own. He's fully aware of the devil's schemes, and he knows exactly who you are, everything about you, every thought that goes through your head. And yet you have a job to take that captive. Stop, examine it. Do some microscopic looking at your thoughts this week. When that message and that voice comes in, take a moment to look at it. Capture it and look at it, almost like you take a picture and you start examining And you compare that picture, which is a lie, with the picture that's the truth. And you're like, whoa, there's five differences here. You like those kind of games? Do it with your thoughts. And and you do that. And one of the things you might need to do if you take some time, there's so many resources, what's the replacement thought? What's really true? What works for you? Put that as a reminder on your desktop every day. It comes up. You're fearfully and wonderfully made because you're going to believe the lie otherwise. Put it where you, you know, put your makeup on or brush your teeth so you can see it all the time. Put it in your back pocket as soon as you think this is what's true. And Nehemiah shows us that's, that's exactly what we need to do. So two brief thoughts. The first is this. As you go forward in your week, whose voice is the loudest in your life? You know, which voices are you listening to? Are you listening to the voices that are true in God's word or to lies? And the other thing I would suggest is if you're in the midst of opposition, don't let that opposition drive you from God, but rather to him. That's what's happening with Nehemiah. He's like, okay, this opposition's real, and I could even treat it as evidence that God is not for us. He says, no. This is going to drive me to God. I'm going to go back to him in prayer again and again and again. And the moment you stop doing that, you're probably giving in to the enemy. And he's gaining ground. I don't want him to gain ground. Not my life, not in yours. Let's arm ourselves with these weapons. And that's one of the reasons why when we say come and pray, man, you kind of get the feeling if we got a glimpse of what this is, there'd be a rush up here. I'd be stampeded. Everybody's running me over. I get that sense in some places, too. Maybe it's a cultural thing. You know, I reference India sometimes. People wait for hours in India for somebody, a holy man, to show up and pray for them. 
lines. Got to go to the next village. You never feel quite so awesome as when you go in a place like that. He's here. There's a line waiting. You just put hands on and they're praying next, whatever the case may be. And sometimes I'm in a different cultural context where I say, come on up for prayer. And it's crickets, 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 crickets. Uh, maybe it's cultural. I don't know. But I think sometimes I myself don't understand how weighty this is. And I think I can evidence that I think I kind of got this. I mean, look, he did put a sword on after all. Let's just put our swords on. It's a both and. Absolutely. This isn't a Second Amendment sermon, by the way. I'm just saying that we pray and we act with wisdom. And you set aside either one of those, you're not getting the full sense of what God is calling us to do. Now, we are going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I'll do the speedy version of it because I know that time is ticking. But this is actually one of the things that we do to remind ourselves that any lies we've believed are not true. What does this table mean? God is for us. And, and it's not because you earned it. It's because he, he died on your behalf. And you have infinite value, so much value that Christ spilled his blood. And his blood wasn't spilled in vain. It, it was spilled so that you could really be a son or a daughter. And so any, any lies you might believe as you come to this, they should be kind of washed away by the blood of Christ that you take in, symbolically. And, and his, his body, which is for you, was given for you. So that no more the voice of opposition that says you're worthless, nobody would care for you, look at the table. Not true. What is true is you're a son or a daughter of God, and you have been forgiven. And he is sustaining you by his grace to face the voices of opposition. And he knows you need that reminder all the time. Otherwise, we'll grow fail, weary, and we'll give up. And the voices of Sam Ballot, the answers to that will be, yes, we're too weak. Yes, a fox is going to knock it down. But they're no. Because, yes, Christ was faithful. And he did die for us. So this table is for those who know that. Sons and daughters who recognize that Christ is for them, who understand this isn't because of what they've done, it's because of what he's done. And we take that in, we believe he's spiritually present. And what a beautiful demonstration that we take him in. And for us, it's bread, but also grape juice. And then we do have the, still the little capsules that you open up, so there'll be some crinkling along the way, and that's okay. What I invite you to do is to come forward, grab uh, the bread in, in, the, in the little um, uh, individual units. I don't know what to call them. <laughs> Packets. That's a good word. These items up here that you can take, there's, there's a, a wafer on the top if you'd prefer that. I'll put some, some, uh, some fresh-made bread out there as well. And then also grape juice. And what we do is we gather and take it back to your seats. Spend some time reflecting um, on, on what we're doing. And then we'll take it together to signify our unity.